0: Hi there, my name's Kit, and welcome to this episode of Encyclopedia. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing Jason Newman, who specializes in the practice of tort law. As part of his role, Jason manages product, public and professional litigation claims. He has also served on the ethics committee of the Law Institute of Victoria for over 10 years, and is a past recipient of the Legal Ethics Award. As a vice president of the Australian and New Zealand Education Law Association, Jason has also received the Rogers Legal Writing Award for his article in the Law Institute Journal on professional negligence in education. I'll be asking Jason a variety of questions about taught law, as well as about his personal experiences within the industry. So without further ado, let's dive in and see what he had to say. So uh, first question we've got for you is, as a student, were you certain that you were interested in taught law? Was that an area of law that you knew you wanted to practice like fairly early on? Uh,
1: no. Uh, I originally thought I wanted to do employment law. Um, and I-, I was interested in taught law. Like, It was certainly one of the subjects that I enjoyed a lot. But um, it wasn't top of my list. Uh, So I I did employment law, but when I got into practice, that's when I figured out the things I liked, uh, and they were different to the ones that I liked at university.
0: Yeah, okay, fair enough. I found the early um, taught unit very interesting as well, and it's been on my radar early on, but also Mm. still trying to figure out if it's then something I want to specialize in in practice. So the next part of the question would be How did those aspirations sort of start originating? How did you start developing more of an interest in tort law?
1: It was really through exposure to to torts in practice. So when I started, I was at a firm that did some torts stuff, some admin, uh, a bit of crime, uh, a little bit of family law, uh, sort of a fair smattering of a lot of different things. And I just found myself gravitating towards the tort law because I found that the circumstances very interesting. And I liked the um, negotiation side of it, I suppose. Um, the criminal law stuff, I found a little too difficult and, and there was less room for negotiation. I think that's part of it. And then uh, I then moved to a, to a to a place where most of what I did was torts. So a lot of torts defence work And I think that's, you know, that's really where my interest started to grow.
0: Can you share a little bit more about that sort of negotiation aspect? Um, How how is negotiation within tort law sort of different to, as you were saying, criminal law and and what made that more appealing?
1: I mean, essentially, with a lot of tort law, you're arguing about money and it's a fairly simple measure, but what goes on behind that is it allows you to make judgments about the likelihood of various outcomes in a case. So I found that interesting as a sort of a, an intellectual battle with somebody else who takes a different view of how a particular set of circumstances might end up in court. And, and it's fairly clean in that sense, uh, in that there is only a certain number of outcomes that might occur. Uh, and the fact scenarios make that interesting for me. So there's never two cases exactly the same, whereas in in crime, I found some of the stuff a little too repetitive, but also I didn't find the negotiation as easy or as satisfying.
0: Yeah, okay. That's really interesting. So now how much of what you practice on a daily basis is taught law?
1: I would guess probably 60 to 70%. Mm-hmm. But but if you, if I took into account things that are sort of tort related, if you like, so for instance, um, if if uh, if a business a school appro- approaches me and wants um, some risk management, the advice that I give them about risk management is informed by torts law. So technically speaking, it's contractual advice that I'd be giving them, like. What sort of contract do you have to draw up with a supplier or things like that but the reality is it's entirely informed or mostly informed by my experience in the torts side of things yeah, so exactly. uh but but yeah roughly 60 70 percent i suppose you know and the rest of it would be things like um discrimination um insurance law uh pure insurance law sort of stuff um inquests you know So, yeah, it's a a variety of other things fill up the rest.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, then you've half kind of answered the next question, but we're trying to paint a little bit of a picture for students with each of our interviews what a sort of day in the life of um, lawyers in different areas of practice are. So could you give us a bit of an overview about what a typical day as a taught lawyer is going to be?
1: Okay. Or is for you at least? Okay, well, I can I can talk about today. Uh, I received two or three um, advices that we are providing to our clients about about some torts cases. Two of them were um, cases of uh, abuse, uh, sexual abuse, whilst in uh, a government-funded care, and we're providing advice to our client about what the reasonable settlement range might be for the um, person who was abused and also uh, his mother. Um, And so my job was to review the letter of advice that a junior lawyer had written, make some suggestions about how to change it um, and then have that sent off. The second thing I did today was go out to uh, Q and talk to um, a group of... Business managers uh, from various uh, schools uh, and I was talking to them about the Privacy Act and about uh, data security, the types of claims that can arise if you don't keep your data safe, that sort of thing. Um, uh, what else? Um, uh, adv- um, providing some help to another junior lawyer where we're dealing with a directors and officers uh, claim, which isn't strictly a torts claim. It's it's a director who is being um, sued by the liquidators for allegedly not complying with corporations law. And there are claims for 45 million bucks. And we're attempting to negotiate the settlement of those claims. So that's kind of a typical day, I guess, uh, would be a little bit of helping out with advice work, you know, talking to, to groups about sort of related stuff, but also just generally uh, um, from my experience how legal issues arise in, in, for example, school settings.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Well, sounds like you were in my area earlier today because I'm based in Kew. Ah, there you go. <laughs> So uh, the first thing you mentioned was sort of reviewing advice that had already been drafted. So I assume then that uh, the client came in and actually discussed their circumstances or or over Zoom or over the phone, and that that's already occurred before now an advice is being given and you're reviewing that advice.
1: Well, it's even more distant than that kit because in fact in this in that particular example I gave you, The company that was uh, uh, the not-for-profit organization that was running the house where this abuse occurred uh, has actually gone into liquidation and it probably went into liquidation as a result of some of the instances of abuse that have occurred at the house. Um, It's been reported on by the Ombudsman, so it's called public public knowledge. Uh, So in fact we have almost no information from, from the client itself we're acting essentially for the client's uh, insurer and the insurer instructs us to to defend the claim and in fact we've got almost no instructions on what exactly happened and so part of the problem we've got in resolving that is actually finding out what the hell happened we've got an ombudsman's report that tells us a bit we've asked for more information from the other parties involved one of whom is the state of Victoria We don't often have, well, sometimes we have clients who come in and tell us what's happened. A lot of the time what we're getting is is reports from, for instance, loss adjusters who go out and talk to the client, get all the information and we are just presented with statements and information and photographs and etc. So that's how it often works.
0: Yeah, it sounds like quite a challenge. So then I assume sometimes you're able to just speak to clients more to try and get more information out of them, but Apart from that, is there any other avenues that sort of tort lawyers can pursue to, to get more facts, like to, I guess, to a degree, almost conduct your own investigation? Is How does that work? Uh,
1: a lot of the time it works by subpoena. So once proceedings have been issued, then we've got the right to subpoena um, non-parties. So um, as an example, if you've got a claim that arises from something that happened in a particular place, you might subpoena somebody to obtain their camera footage or documents about some accident that happened. So subpoenas are a big, a big part of it. Uh, Another part is, um, so for instance, an example might be where it's a school claim. Uh, Sometimes I'll go out and or, or, or I'll send a junior lawyer out to interview various staff members who are involved in the incident. We'll, you know, provide um, draft statements for them to have a look at and to review and to sign etc so it depends a bit sometimes we get the information directly from the client sometimes we get it second hand sometimes then we have to fill in that information but there's an awful lot of time spent just trying to figure out exactly what happened um, hmm. and that's not always easy
0: is that something that you consider to kind of be a hassle that's getting in the way of you doing a job or do you find it to be an interesting part of the process
1: oh that is the job i mean <laughs> you know you can't you cannot advise anybody until you know exactly what the circumstances are i had a junior lawyer who's in court this morning and he only received instructions last night uh from a client in adelaide and essentially we had to Discuss the fact that we had no idea what had happened in this um, accident that had occurred, and we were brought into it at the last minute. So he had to go to court this morning and essentially say, "Look, I I know nothing about what's going on. I haven't been able to provide any advice. The other parties are going to have to tell me what's going on, um, and I won't be able to add anything useful. I'm just going to have to go away and find out more about this and come back later." So it's it's a common problem that we don't know what's happened. But I no, I actually find it quite an interesting uh, part of the job, not just to find out what my client thinks happened, but to understand what a court might determine happened. Because the client might well tell you uh, A, B, C and D happened. And when you look at that objectively, you, it's, it's not your job just to simply say, okay, well, if the client says A, B, C, D and E happened, then that's what happened. Your job as a lawyer is to say, well, okay, you say A, B, C, D and E happened, how many of those things can we prove happened? And quite often, uh, in fact, we can't prove all of them. Sometimes we can't prove any of them. I mean, that's why you get into disputes a lot. Factual disputes are a large part of this, is that my client will say, oh, this, this definitely occurred. I'll ask for evidence of it. and. Get none or alternatively the other side's got a completely different story about how something happened and our job is to try to be objective and determine well which is the story that is more likely to be accepted by court
0: yeah okay i have found that to be an interesting sort of aspect of some of the problem questions that we've been given at uni Um, we're told to just assume that the facts given to us can be proven but i've often read a problem and thought well that would be very hard to prove had actually happened. So that would be, the case might even turn on something that we're actually just allowed to assume the court will believe happened.
1: It's a very common trap for young lawyers to fall into. And and I see it all the time. A junior lawyer comes in and I'll ask them to go and interview the client or a witness or whatever. And they'll come back to me and they'll provide this account of what happened. And I'll say, well, what do you think about that? And they look at me like, what do you mean? What do I think about that? Well, is it provable? Is it believable? Is it does it, is it credible? Is is this witness credible? And a lot of the time early on, they're sort of surprised by that. Like, but what, what do you mean? Well, it's our job to prove this. So we have to know whether it's actually reliable or not. We have to test it against what the other side might say factually happened. Um, and what can they prove? Mm. So uh, an awful lot of my job is to figure out, well, what is it that happened and what can we, it, in fact, it's not really about what happened. It's about what we can prove happened.
0: Yep. Yep. Very fair enough. Okay. So I'll, I'll move on to the questions we've got the next one also a bit, bit of a general one, but for you, what's the most fulfill, fulfilling part of your job? Oh,
1: that's a tough one.
0: Um, I think when uh
1: we've achieved an outcome that I think is is, is a good one, is, is a fair one. I mean, as a defendant lawyer in, in torts cases, it's very rare to actually, you know, if you like, win, be successful completely, uh, because the odds are stacked against um, defendants in a lot of cases, for good reason. Um, you know, uh, uh, people don't sue others because they just want to have a go they sue them because they think there's a real chance of proving a claim against them. So you're already starting behind the you know, the starting line in a sense. So what I find a lot of satisfaction in is getting a good result. So getting what I think is a fair result given the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of times that is, in fact, some of the best results I've had have been the quickest because client gives me the file. I have a look at it. Um, I remember, One of the ones I had very early in my career. Um, Client gave me the file. I thought this claim is doomed to fail. That is, the plaintiff who was suing our client, I thought they were doomed to fail. And I said, let me talk to them. So, brought the solicitor from the other side in and essentially just went through our story and said, there is no way you are going to prove this claim. You will fail. And, it essentially convinced them and they withdrew it now from start to finish it took about a week uh and to me that was one of the best results I ever had because it never should have got to court it really just took somebody to explain why it was going to fail and that's what happened
0: yeah okay I withdrew yeah right this is a kind of important question for trying to connect um the study and practice of law for students but what do you think are the skills that are most necessary for your particular area of practice?
1: That's a good question. This is a I know this is a strange answer, but um one word is nouse, basically. Uh street smarts, because the legal stuff in, in in torts, the the law side of it is not all that complicated to be to be honest. It's not. It, it's, not, uh, it's not rocket science. It's fairly straightforward. Um, it, it, you know, it pales in comparison to sort of, you know, intellectual property law or, or tax. Uh, it's, it's mostly, you know, we're not arguing about the law all that much. I mean, when we do, it's interesting. But most of the time, what I need from a junior lawyer is, is a feel for the real world, a bit of nous, a bit of uh, street smarts. Um, but that's that's essentially what I'm looking for. Uh, I I can't have, in my practice, I can't have just academic lawyers. You know, oh, this is the legal answer. Well, that's great. Fantastic. That's step one. That's the legal answer. Second step is what's the practical solution to the client's problem? And knowing the legal answer isn't necessarily going to help you solve the client's problem. So that's why I'm looking for people who are um practically focused goal focused practically focused um and have some straight smarts about them
0: yeah excellent i love that answer that's that's definitely the part of the law that attracts me more the actual sort of practical applicable kind of logic of it rather than sort of debates about the uh the nuances next question then so At Monash, we have the mandatory torts unit and we have the advanced torts unit, which you came and did a guest lecture for. So what other electives would you suggest to someone wishing to pursue a career in tort law? Were there any that you studied that you thought feed in well? Uh, You still have professional practice there at Monash, don't you? We do, yeah. Yeah, I learned more in professional practice in six months
1: than I learned in six years. Well, it took me (laughs) six years. Um, If you want to be a torts lawyer, Go and do professional practices i mean to me that i just learned everything i know everything i'm almost everything i know about how to practice law i learned in that six months so uh that to me i mean if i see that on a resume i'm immediately okay well so they've got some idea of how the real world works because firstly you have to deal with clients and you have to deal with some quite difficult clients and that's that freaks some junior lawyers out i can tell you if they've come out of university and they've never dealt with anybody um, that can really throw them for six. Um, I know it did when I started professional practice, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to handle a client. I had no idea how to practically help them. So to me, that's the most important.
0: Yeah, great. Yeah, I am, I am looking forward to those units. I think that Monash guarantees at least one um, sort of practice experience, but I think they offer a couple that you can, if you're lucky, you can get into a couple but I had a little bit of an early exposure to it. Um, in criminal law, we kind of did a bit of a placement and we could choose the courts or community legal centre. So the Monash Run Community Legal Centre, um, I sort of spent a couple of sessions there and co- kind of got a little bit of an exposure to what the older students were doing with the interviews of clients. So yeah, it does look like an interesting learning experience.
1: Oh, to me, it, it is, yeah, it, it's it was the best part of the course and it was the most important part of the course for me.
0: Great, I think it gives students a good insight into what the realities are gonna be for different areas of practice as well. That's what we're trying to do with Encyclopedia a little bit, but nothing beats hands-on experience in whatever area of practice.
1: Well, just as a really fundamental, I couldn't believe, I can't believe looking back at this now, but I walked into the Springvale Legal Service for for the professional practice and they said, you're gonna get 14 files. And I said, at once, like I had no idea that lawyers handled more than one thing at a time. My my whole idea was you get one legal problem and then you solve it and then you move on to the next one. Like just I had no concept of what lawyers do. Mm.
0: Um so next question is how do you manage your work life balance? Uh much better than I used to,
1: I think is probably the answer. <laughs> um certainly COVID has helped uh because you know, working from home. Um Definitely. Look, work-life balance depends on the place you choose to work is really the answer to that question. Because if if you go for a place that uh, pays you a lot of money, they'll expect you to do a lot of hours. It's a pretty straightforward um, bargain that you set. And I always say to junior lawyers, you have to be comfortable with the bargain you set. I could go and work at a place that expected me to do less work and pay me less. um, And I would be less comfortable. So I've just found the bit that suits me. And I work, you know, eight till six, most weekdays, I very, very rarely work weekends. Um, That works for me. Um, It was difficult when the kids were young, but work-life balance, I think, is largely a product of where you work, Um, because there are places that will demand you work longer. That's just simply, that's just the maths of it.
0: Is there a certain degree of seniority that you need to achieve in order to open up sort of more flexible work hours? Um, would someone at uh, where you work that is a junior be expected to put in a little bit more overtime on certain cases than you would now that you're a more senior? Uh,
1: that's yes or no. Um, I mean, we we provide a lot more flexibility than a lot of places, um, and there are more. There are some places that provide more than us. Um, Generally speaking, our junior lawyers probably work a bit harder than me, Yep, Um, and I certainly worked a lot harder than them when I was a a junior lawyer. I I would think that they would say they don't work themselves into the ground. That's pretty... I mean, it's very important for us that we don't work our people into the ground, that they don't feel that they don't have uh, a work-life balance. And the fact is, we've got timesheets. And so, as far as we're concerned, as long as you get your work done, I don't, you know, we don't care where your work, where you, what you're doing. Um, you know, if if you want to get your work done between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. and take the rest of the day off, and you've done all your work fine with me, um, as long as you're available, you know, to be to to have stuff coming in and dealing with it. So, um, um, I suppose to answer your question, yes, it does become easier as you progress to make it more flexible but simply because I'm the one that gets to say what happens you know if I take I could take the day off tomorrow if I wanted um I don't generally but if I wanted to I could make it happen so whereas junior lawyers are going to have to pass that through me Mm
0: yeah okay fair enough uh so what is one piece of advice you would give yourself back in university
1: oh that's a tough one um I think looking back, I didn't have uh, the confidence that I would land somewhere that I was happy with, uh, and and jobs were a lot easier to get back then. Um, but I still think my advice to my former self would be: try for something, you know, try, try a whole lot of things and see what happens, see what sticks. Uh, I kind of went for the first thing that that you know looked good and felt okay. Uh, and that's been fine and, and, and I've I've enjoyed the career I've had and I've enjoyed the work. Um, but I think I could have if I had a bit more confidence in my ability to get a, to get work, that I would have perhaps widened the, the net and p- perhaps tried other things as well. Um having said that I did get a fair spread of stuff at the start, and there was a lot of things I didn't like. So I I, I, I suppose my yeah, my advice would be try a lot of stuff. Okay. Don't get pigeonholed too quick.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's any particular tips for students that are sort of facing the decision making of um, what job to take? Any any tips on mm, how do I put this? How to. Uh, How do identify what jobs are maybe, as you described, you're just gonna take it because it's the first offer and what job might be actually pushing the boundaries a bit more and and sort of extending your reach?
1: Uh, I I think it's it's a lot about knowing yourself first, understanding what it is that makes you tick and then seeing if you can match a, a work environment to that. Yeah, okay and for me work environment is really important i've done the same work in at four different firms i can tell you that at three of those firms i enjoyed it very much at one of those firms i hated it and i hated it with a burning passion and yet i was doing the same work so the work kind of didn't matter as much as the atmosphere of the firm which was a disaster like i wouldn't i would never send anyone to work there um, and so the, so the culture and the, and the place that you work and the people that you work with, to me, have always meant a lot more than the work itself. Uh, you, it, I, I would much prefer to do work that I don't like with people that I do like than the other way around.
0: Yes, fair enough. I did some freelance design work for a while and over the course of the year, I took um, jobs that might have ranged from a single day to four weeks. So I got exposed to so many different work environments and, you know, it's all similar kind of role for me, but wow, really was interesting to see the sort of range of uh, work cultures and how comfortable or the opposite people could be kind of working in them. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can tell, I would think, you can tell that from
1: just a few, there's a few, you know, sort of red flags that will, will tell you that. In fact, one of the red flags I remember, I I, I applied at a firm that has now become guidance. And I remember that I went into the interview at 6pm at night and I finished at 7.30 at night and I walked out and the only people that were in the office were four junior lawyers. And I thought, mm, why, how come they're working at 7.30 at night? And they didn't look like they were close to finishing. And I thought, and I actually got an offer from them and said, no, nah, I don't think
0: so. Might have dodged a bullet there.
1: I mean, they're a great firm. Um, uh, and, and I know some fantastic practitioners there. And but it just wasn't a culture that I was comfortable with. So that's <laughs> what I said, you have to know yourself and, th- and then you have to match your particular um you know needs and wants to a culture.
0: Mm-hmm. So you might have touched on this a little bit, but um I might ask it anyway and see if there's anything new you, you would want to add, but what are some of the challenges that you find are unique to practising tort law as compared to some of the other areas of law you've touched on?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say they're unique to taught law, but they are unique to some areas of law. And I think crime is one of them as well. You're talking about human stories and it's you, you have to have a little bit of distance from, from them in order to do your job properly. And one of the things I found difficult as a junior lawyer, in fact, as a senior lawyer, is occasionally I would do work for um, injured plaintiffs and I found it impossible to be objective. Um, uh, yeah, I, I found it very difficult to give them objective advice because I identified too much with the suffering that they'd gone, uh, that undergone. Uh, whereas for me, I find it a lot easier giving advice to defendants because they're not the ones who've suffered having said that I mean I deal with teachers who have been involved in some horrific cases and feel devastated um, and so those affect me but um I yeah that that to me that's that's a challenge and it's a challenge in torts and it's a challenge in in crime and you know as an example we do some defensive abu- of sexual abuse claims uh I don't do a lot of it but I do some And there's some people who do a lot of it, and it has a huge emotional impact on them. And so that's one of the things you have to consider in coming into something like this, is that you understand that we're talking about human stories, and there are real human people behind them. And some of those are going to be very
0: upsetting. Mm. Yeah, I've definitely heard people talk about that as an element of family law as well.
1: Yes, definitely. yeah, it can be it, it can be quite difficult in family law. Um, so I suppose that there are, there are a number of those areas. But I mean, as an example, I gave a, a a job to a junior lawyer just recently. We're dealing we're defending a client in a in, a, in an inquest, and it's the death of a fifteen year old student on a um, at school, and it was a horrific death. I mean, nothing nothing that could be otherwise for a fifteen year old, but. I, before I gave the file to the junior lawyer I said are you are you going to be okay with this because it's pretty confronting um, so that that's the sort of thing we deal with quite a bit
0: mm. now again with my next question I think you might have um, answered this already a little bit with the story of the negotiation with the other lawyer that kind of shut down the case that well, would probably shouldn't have gone to, to trial anyway uh, and the question is what has been a highlight in your career so Either I'd rephrase that is, is there any other highlight in your career thus far that you'd like to share? Or alternatively, uh, what's one of the most exciting projects or memorable cases that you've worked on?
1: Well, I mean, the case that I talked about is probably one of the most memorable ones. Um, It it probably wasn't the best uh, outcome for anybody. It was a pretty poor outcome for everybody. Um, but that that's often the case uh, with difficult cases so that the 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 you know the case i'm talking about obviously
0: um that was yeah that was my, my most interesting case highlight difficult um, sorry just to clarify are you talking about the case that you discussed in uh, the guest lecture or the one yes. you discussed earlier today no in the guest lecture the guest lecture yeah a quick interjection here the case that jason is referring to is one that he shared with us in a guest lecture as part of the advanced torts unit The case was a sad and somewhat confronting one that involved a heroin addict who had had to have her arm amputated after she passed out while resting it on a bedroom heater. Jason represented the defendants in this matter, which were the landlord and the real estate agent. At first, he was left scratching his head as to what grounds the plaintiff intended to argue a case of negligence, as it appeared that the accident had resulted purely from her own actions. However, the issue at hand was that the share housing the plaintiff lived in was required to have a smoke detector in every room, and there was no smoke detector installed in the room in question. The case still raised important and interesting questions of remoteness and causation. Was the kind of injury that the plaintiff suffered really of a kind that smoke detectors are installed to prevent? And even if a detector had been installed, would it have gone off in time to have prevented the plaintiff from suffering the injury that she did. These were the questions that Jason and his team needed to investigate as part of the negligence claim. In the end, an out-of-court settlement meant that the case was never run in a court of law. However, as Jason shared with me during the interview, it remains one of the most memorable cases that he has worked on. Uh, so sorry, you were you were going to um, to talk about a different highlight.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that I could, I could give a highlight. Um, I could tell you what the highlights generally are. One of them is being able to um, uh, see the progression of a junior lawyer from coming into moving into their own the way of doing it, things, and then you know becoming a, 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 a fully fledged, fledged you know practitioner. Um, uh, you know, the, my outsider who's now a, a fellow partner of mine. Um, we've been working together for eleven years. Um, she came in having almost no taught experience whatsoever um, just took to it really well developed her own practice developed her own style uh, and so it was incredibly satisfying to me when she then uh, launches as a as a, a partner of the firm with her own practice doing her own stuff stuff that some of the stuff that i don't do or you know um, have not been involved in but to me that has been very satisfying is seeing other lawyers progress through um, and, you know, having some small part in that's been really satisfying.
0: Yeah, amazing. So I've just got two more questions. First, how do you think tort law will develop in the future? Uh, I just handed in a major assignment for uh, advanced torts, and I was uh, having a look at the tort of privacy and, and what's been going on with that in the common law and ideas that they, you know, maybe they, the ALRC Uh, has been suggesting, like a statutory um, tort instead. Is there anything that stands out to you as kind of being in development in the era of torts?
1: I think privacy is an interesting one, and I do think that it's likely um, that's going to become um, a much more active active tort. Uh, You might find this strange um, for me to say, but in fact, I I think torts generally are a pretty blunt instrument. and not a particularly nuanced way of sorting out the problems that we've got. Um, I, I mean, I look to New Zealand that has a no fault um, uh, personal injury scheme, as an example. Um, they, I think, do a pretty good job of um, dealing with these things. Uh, so the, the, I think the tort system itself is as good as it can be, but. Um, is just generally not a great instrument of um, societal development, if you like. Um, But I do see, unfortunately, there's going to be more and more tortious activity. Um, And, and, yeah, privacy is definitely one of those. Um, I think even some of the intentional torts are starting to be used a lot more um, these days, assault, um, trespass to the person, things like that. Uh, There's a bit of a revival of those sorts of things. So... Uh, I, I don't see them going away anytime soon, um, but yeah, just just on a personal level, I, I I don't think the system is the best one we could have.
0: Yeah. Okay. So last tip is in regards to any extracurricular activities that you think students should participate in. So you mentioned um, uh, like practice placement is important, but Monash does offer quite a lot of um, extracurricular. Options. The, the interview I'm conducting right now is, is sort of part of one of those with the Law Ambassador program. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you see on resumes or, or that you did that you think stands out for candidates for, for jobs? Sorry.
1: Yeah. Um the thing I'm looking for, I, I assume most people can do the law bit, like a most and most of them can. So the thing I'm looking for in, in our practice is for somebody who, as I said, has some straight smarts and has a bit of uh, I, I you know, I'm not looking for a black leather lawyer. I'm looking for a person who can, uh, number one, deal with somebody they don't know um, and deal with them effectively. And a great um, starting point for that is people, frankly, who've worked in difficult retail situations. Uh, so if somebody's worked in a, or in retail or some other client facing um, business or or area, and they are able to deal with the general public under difficult circumstances, I think they're going to be well set up for the sort of stuff we do, because there's a confidence about them, they can deal with people, they know what they're doing. Um, one of my junior lawyers ran his own web business, um, dealt with clients, understands how, how, how to deal with them. A, a lot of the junior staff of been involved in, you know, the restaurant industry, kitchens, pretty tough, that sort of thing. Um, I was involved in disability for many years, Um, had to deal with the parents of disabled kids and that, you know, that teaches you a lot. So that's the sort of stuff I'm looking for on a resume is have you been involved in something that tells me you can deal with difficult customers?
0: Mm. Okay, fair enough. Well, that's the end of my questions. Thank you All very right. much. Those that, that great answers. Very, no problem. very interesting.
1: No problem. Welcome, Kit.
0: If you enjoyed this interview and you'd like to learn more about other areas of the law, visit our website at encyclopedia.org. That's E-N-C-Y-C-L-A-W-P-E-D-I-A.org. Also, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram to stay up to date with our latest interviews and release dates. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.